Scripture reading for this morning is found in Genesis chapter 32. We're going to read the whole chapter. I'll give you a moment just to uh, find that in your Bibles and ask that you follow along with me. In Genesis chapter 32, Jacob went on his way and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them. Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my Lord in order that I may find favor in your sight. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are 400 men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff, I crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good, and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau my brother meets you and asks you to whom do you belong, where are you going, and whose are these ahead of you, then you shall say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a present sent to my lord Esau, and moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Yabok 
He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him during the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Bob. Would you pray with me? Lord, may you open your word to us today. May you make our hearts humble to hear what you have for us as you lead us towards the baby in the manger this Advent season. Uh, We ask a blessing upon your word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we began our journey with Jacob uh, weeks back now as he left the promised land for fear of his life. And you remember the sun was setting on that exit out of the promised land, and he was visited there in that first uh, exodus out of the promised land by God's angel army. Well, today, Jacob is on the threshold of re-entering the promised land, and now he gets another, another visit from the angels, and now a sunrise to welcome him back home. I love that. He was leaving. It was a sunset. He's coming back in at sunrise to welcome him back home. But now... On the border of the promised land, he's about to face his greatest fight yet. And he's been through a lot, hasn't he? A lot in his life. And he's afraid. He is fearful because he thinks that his greatest fight is with Esau, his betrayed brother. But what Jacob really needs is a healthy dose of good fear of God today as he comes back to the promised land. The fight will not be with Esau. It'll actually be with God. And what an absolute radical transformation we're going to see in the life this morning of Jacob as he's changed in two distinct ways, in body, you heard that in the weird part of this story, and in name, as he comes to the end of himself. So here's where we're going this morning. We're going to answer the question of how do you win by losing, and we're going to answer that question today by looking at three sections of this story, the fight, the blessing, And the response, the fight, the blessing, and the response. You see those in bold on your outline there. So grab your outline. Hopefully you've got it open there. And your Bible to Genesis 32, whether it's on your smartphone or tablet or in book form, as we are going to point towards the manger as we begin Advent and point towards the Savior in that manger. So let's start today by looking at the fight. When was the last time you wrestled somebody? Probably a while I'm serious, though. Think about it for a minute. When was the last time you wrestled somebody? When you, when you grow up, as I did, in a, a house of three boys, wrestling comes really naturally. Some of you shaking your head out there, maybe you grew up with brothers. 
I grew up watching WWF, but that isn't quite wrestling. More stage stuntmen play acting uh, is what that is. Uh, But if you're a grown adult, it's probably been decades since you've wrestled anyone, or maybe we should talk if you have. (laughs) But the wrestling that takes place is really important. It's really of immense importance. In our day and age, you can wrestle at at the competitive level, you can wrestle and watch it for entertainment, but no one really wrestles for honor anymore or to determine a a dispute. Think David and Goliath or a victory in battle battle like they did in biblical times. We don't really do that anymore, and I'm actually grateful for that. Uh, Well, we'll get into more of that in a minute, but let's look at the context of the fight before the fight proper. As we look at this first section that, that we'll see in Jacob, that even with the assurance of God's presence, which comes again to him, and the assurance of God's power, many times, like Jacob, we're a mixture of prayer, we're going to see, and panic in life. A mixture of prayer and panic. Remember now, Jacob is about to re-enter the world of his family again, the world where he deceived his father Isaac, He deceived his brother Esau twice, and he was threatened by his brother Esau that he was going to kill him. Remember now, just to set this context. And so God gives him another divine visit. Heaven opens up on earth again, much like that staircase on his way out when he had a dream. Heaven opens up again, and the angels of God meet him again for the second time, once on the way out and now on the way back in. Jacob is given again assurance of God's presence and power as he's about to face an unknown and another potentially life-threatening situation. This is divine reassurance for his man, for God's man, that Jacob was still the object after all these years of God's relentless grace, a grace that pursued him, a grace that went after him. And when he has this second vision, he says, this is, this is God's camp. God is here. God is present. He's put down his tent stakes, and he's here with me in my life. And we shouldn't be surprised, if you think about it, to find an angel army and and a flurry of activity uh, on the border of God's promised land, kind of like almost like a border patrol. Maybe think the, the, the angels placed at the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve were expelled. It's not surprising to find this activity around the border of God's promised land, ushering back in the promised son, Jacob, through whom the serpent crusher would come. Advent, Christmas, the serpent crusher, the baby in the manger. Well, the point here for Jacob and for us is this, as he sees this visitation of angels again, is that the number of those who were for Jacob far outnumbered to anybody that was against Jacob. And he was in far greater, uh, far less danger than he actually realized in front of him with Esau and his clan. The number that was for him was much greater. And so too for us. If God is for you, who can be against you? Think about that. If God is for you, who can be against you? Who can take you down? Who can ultimately destroy you? No one. No one can. And yet we see in these opening verses, Jacob is still full of fear. He's still frightened. 
And he devises a misguided plan again to re-enter and seek to persuade his brother by almost giving back the inheritance that he stole in the first place and giving back the blessing that was truly his because God said it was his. Now, Jacob knows, he knows reconciliation is needed. He knows it. He's going back to the vicinity of his family. But it's not because of geography. He could travel around Esau to get back into the promised land. But what his heart needs is reconciliation with Esau. So it's not a geographical need because he's in his way as a roadblock. No, there's a heart need for him to reconcile. There is a great spiritual need for Esau to reconcile. In chapters 32 and 33, that's what we have. This great reconciliation. Picturing, really, acted out in these chapters that what we see in the words of Jesus in Matthew 5. Here's some of these words. These are from Jesus. So if you're giving a gift at the altar and there, remember, your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and just go. Go, Jesus says. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. What a great need Jacob had in his life. What a great need we have and see in the church through these words of Jesus and through this now coming conflict with Esau, his brother, to learn to reconcile with people. Why is that something we can do in the church? Because we have the gospel. Because we have the good news of Jesus Christ, we have the resources actually to reconcile, to work through hard things, to work through divisions and hurts and even betrayals. We have those resources and the truths of the gospel, grace, mercy, forgiveness, acceptance. But the church sometimes seems to be the place where we, we, we sometimes speak the least about our, openly about our hurts and our wounds. We sometimes think, well, I want to be nice. I want to kind of not stir anything up. And so we don't say anything, but that doesn't solve anything either. That sometimes makes it worse. As Jesus says here, go. If you've got an offering, go. Don't even come here. Go first to reconcile. To not reconcile is to risk serious spiritual danger and an offense to God. Jacob knows that. Jesus teaches that. We need to learn that. I think like Jacob, we have the assurance of God's presence and power. We have something even greater. We, Christ has risen. We know that. But many times like Jacob, we respond maybe with a misguided or panicked efforts. There's so much for us to learn here today. There's so much for us to grasp onto here today when we have God's presence in conflict. Where is your conflict today? Think about that for a moment. Who in your life are you in conflict with right now? Where is there a bit of tension in relationship that you need to see resolved? We probably all have at least one place or person in this room where things just don't feel like they used to feel. And the communication, there's a breakdown. And there's a coldness in the room when you now enter there with this person. Where do you need to reconcile? Jacob pursues it. Jesus commands it, and we should too. 
Well, regardless of how you look at Jacob's efforts, either as an attempt to buy Esau off, which I kind of lean towards, or a sincere effort, however you look at it, it was generous. He essentially sends these messengers off to Esau and says, I'm willing to give you the whole ranch. The whole thing is yours. I'm willing just to, to give it all to you. I've got presents galore for you, Esau. As we say, see later in verse 13, he sends hundreds of animals, around 550 animals he sends. But the messengers return with the great news that there's about 400 hairy-chested men on their way to see him. <laughs> really good news. Warriors on their way with Esau. And the text tells us, picking up, look at verse 7 with me in 8 again. Then Jacob was greatly afraid. He was afraid. He was fearful and stressed out, distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two camps, thinking, well, if Esau comes to one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left uh, will escape. The irony here is that he just has been exposed again to God's presence and, and blessing upon him. And in fear, he can only think of survival. How are we going to survive? The thought of the angel army is gone now again for Jacob. So quickly. Hey, let's split up. At, at least Esau can only get half of us. So let's just split up. Let's try that as a strategy. And look how the division ends up in chapter 33. As they divide, who has to go first? Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children out in front, <laughs> then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. Nice, Jacob. Put the exploited servants out first. Hey, at least we'll, we'll save the better half. You see, Jacob again. He trusts God, but then takes matters into his own hand with misguided efforts. But he does pray. He does pray. And we need to talk about that for a moment because it's part of the centerpiece of this, of this passage. There is real spiritual growth here with Jacob. Yes, it's slow. And yes, it looks probably a lot like our spiritual growth. Trust in God mixed in with misguided efforts and two steps forward, sometimes ten back. Much like him, we're a mixture of these, this godly faith and misguided moments. But we need to look at it. So let's take a look at his prayer. Because it is true spiritual growth and it is sincere. sincere and I want to quickly unpack the prayer because I believe it's a model of prayer. And it's also Jacob's first recorded prayer in the Bible. And it's also the appropriate response, first response, when you find yourself in a confrontation. But is that your natural tendency? It's not mine always. Is your natural tendency, as soon as a crisis comes, as soon as a trial comes, as soon as you're uncertain or worried or afraid or stressed out as Jacob is, is your first instinct to get down on your knees? Jacob is a model for us here because that is what he does. Or when you need to reconcile, how often are you praying to the Lord about that break in relationship? God, show me the way forward with this person. Show me the way forward with this situation. Or any crisis is your first instinct to pray. Let's look at it again one more time. 
Verse 9, Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I'm not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I crossed this Jordan. He means on the way out. And now I've become two camps. He's got enough for two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers, with the children. But you said, I'll surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Well, what do we see here first? What do we see in this prayer first? The first thing we see is that Jacob prays humbly. He says in these words, I, I'm unworthy of this steadfast love you've shown me. I fear him. There's a humility here. As even Neil was speaking about this morning, we see in Christ that we need. Gone is the chronic self-sufficiency that we've come to know Jacob by. There is a humility that is, that is necessary when we come to Jesus. You have to come on your knees. You can't come thumping your chest proud. You have to come on your knees. I'm not worthy of your steadfast love, he says. But he's afraid too, as we said. It's proper humility with 400 warriors breathing down his neck. But it's also a bold prayer. He prays boldly, deliver me, I pray. Please deliver me and my family, verse 11, from Esau, my brother. And he uses the same word, deliver, when he says after the wrestling match with God, I've seen God face to face and I have been delivered. He prays, deliver me, and he repeats it again when he is delivered and says, I have been delivered. Thank you, Lord. God answers this bold cry for deliverance. Even right in our story, he answers the prayer. What's the third? Next we see, it's a word-centered prayer. Prayer is to be word-centered Humble, bold, word-centered. He says, for you said your words to me, God. So his hope and his faith were based on God's word alone. God's promises to him. God's promises to you. That's what our prayers will be based upon. You said, God, your word said you would return me to this land. And now I'm in the face of this wall of danger. What are you going to do, God? You said this. You said you'd make my family like the sand of the sea and that we'd be a blessing to the nations. He leans upon those words. Those words that with God has bound himself to Jacob. Covenant was that word we talked about a while back. The covenant with this family. Do you know how many promises have been spoken by God about you? I mean, the New Testament is full of them. Things that God has said about you. Ways that God looks at you because of Christ. Promises that are to come because of Jesus. How often do we jump on those in prayer and repeat them to the Lord? Not because he's forgotten them, but because he's a God of grace who loves to give them. It's our final point of this prayer. He prays by grace for grace. 
It's not as if God forgot those promises and that Jacob needed to remind him. That can't be the case or we don't have a very worthy God who needs to be actually reminded. No, God loves Jacob and he's gracious and he loves to answer the prayers of his children when they remind him of the promises and deliver them. It's the same for us. God hasn't forgotten us, but he wants us, he wants you to call upon him, call upon his character, call upon his promises, because in that he's glorified. In that he sees you trusting what he has said and what he will do. The success for Jacob here the success for you in your life. It doesn't come through his scheme. You know, he sends the animals ahead in verses 13 to 21, but it doesn't come through that. It comes through God, the deliverance. But we see this panic in Jacob as he just sends the whole herd on, just just give it to Esau. So we gotta look at it. He responds in prayer, remember, and panic. So let's look at it. Whenever we open um, presents at Christmas at certain grandparents' homes who will remain nameless. It can take hours. <laughs> Maybe you do this too. Why is that? Well, we kind of, grandma or grandpa says, well, one present will be opened at a time by a child, and then we'll kind of hold it up and we'll all, all ooh and ah over it before even the next kid can touch the second one, or they may get one of these, right? One at a time. That's what Jacob does here. One present at a time, we're going to send them along so Esau can see how sorry I really am. But here it seems with these big presents, this extravagant giving that Jacob does for Esau, it seems that rather than let grace do its work between the brothers, Jacob's more concerned with appeasing and just buying Esau off. It's totally unnecessary kind of like his finagling with the sheep and the goats. It's totally unnecessary when he has the promise and the power and the angel army of God behind him, actually in front of him, and the blessing of God with him. He seems willing to just nullify the blessing and his place of leadership in this family through this extravagant gift and, and coming as a servant of his Lord, Esau. Fear and anxiety have gripped him. And it's caused for him this great panic. And, and really, it was kind of an act of, of self-atonement, figuring out the problem himself, a self-salvation project. Well, what can I do? I, I'm afraid. He's coming. I'm going to die. Yeah, the angels. Okay, yeah, I remember that. But actually, we've got to figure something out here. That's what's going on here. There's a temptation for us to want to receive the blessing of God with our own efforts. I gotta do something. Remember, the wrestling wouldn't be with Esau here. The fight would be with God. And that's actually how it is most of the time with us. It's never actually about the fight with our perceived enemy. It's more about the wrestling on the surface of our heart in faith or lack of faith, or courage, or fear and anxiety. It's usually a war on the surface of our heart. Will you trust God in the face of opposition? I think it's a question we have to continue to ask ourselves probably more and more. 
as the opposition towards biblical truth, you could say, or the Christian faith is increasing? Will we believe God when we're outnumbered, as Jacob may have been? Will we believe when we lose our influence and power, when we are perceived, when you are perceived as the enemy? Will you believe God in that circumstance? Will you wrestle with what's going on on the surface of your heart? Will we believe God at his word when he says, you know what? That's not good for you to give into. That's actually destructive for your life if you do this. When temptation comes, will you believe his word? Because even as we said, with all his scheming, the success comes through the prayer, through God. It has nothing to do with all his efforts and gift giving in this story. So see, this prayer is a model for us. Trust God in prayer. Well, Jacob does, even as he's mixed with panic and prayer, he does act honorably as he puts a river between his family and Esau that night. And as night sets in, it must have been a terrifying night as he's now alone. Let's look at this wound that comes in this fight. As we'll look and see that the Lord wounds actually his man, wounds his own in order to bless him? That's a strange thought. That our good and loving God might wound us? Or, or allow us to be wounded at the very least? To bless us? Imagine the shock to his system as he was sitting around the campfire, maybe his near heart attack, when a hand of a man grabbed him on the shoulders. Can you imagine that? The adrenaline and the panic and the, the, the heart skipping a few beats there as this wrestling match begin, begins. It's sort of a matter-of-fact detail in, the, in the, the story, kind of like we're just supposed to go, oh yeah, wrestling happens all the time. This man just comes up and grabs him. And they wrestle in the dust. And in true Jacob fashion, what do we see? He rises to the occasion. Let's do this. Bring this on. Let's go. I mean, they probably wrestled seven or eight hours. If we're thinking all night, this grappling in the mud is the idea the text and the language gives us there. And you know what? His whole life has been characterized by wrestling with others, hasn't it? Metaphorically speaking, his family, his father-in-law, his wives, his brother. But now, this person came with a plan came at night on purpose so Jacob wouldn't truly recognize who he was and plans to leave by morning when he says, hey, Jacob, the sun's coming up. Let me go. I think he does that because if Jacob knew actually who he was getting into a fight with, he would have ran for the hills, hopped back in the river and swam over to the other side to his wives if he would have known. Here we have a really strange occurrence of God, divine being, somehow in a human or angelic form, as he was when he visited Abraham. Remember in Genesis, the three men come, and one of them's like this divine being that deserves worship. Well, that can't be just a human or even an angel. Sometimes he's called the angel of the Lord. Some believe it's the pre-incarnate Jesus, uh, Jesus' appearances in the Old Testament. 
Regardless, either way, it's, a, it's divine. It's, it's God in some way here as they wrestle together. We see that it would take something really extreme and really dramatic to transform this man. This man, Jacob. He would need an injury of the Lord to bless him. Growing up playing lots of sports, I got to witness firsthand lots of injuries. Some of you that were athletes, maybe growing up playing sports, you you realize that. I mean, even as a high school pitcher, I even hit somebody with an 80-mile-an-hour fastball right in the eye socket. Yeah, ow, was right. Um, I did not relish my plate appearance after that. Uh, I was throwing it probably five, six times. You don't usually hit somebody right in the eye, but I did. So I I witnessed some really kind of gruesome injuries in my years, but I think the most gruesome was when I was playing football. It was normal Tuesday practice, and we were just out running and doing some, some tackling drills out on the field, and one of my buddies went to, it's kind of one of those things where somebody has the ball, and you sort of run at a triangle like this, angle, and kind of ta- one guy tackles the other, but he awkwardly kind of tackled and wrapped his legs around the guy and just sort of dragged him to the ground. Not a textbook tackle, I'll tell you. But as he awkwardly dragged him to the ground, it sort of just rearranged this guy's knee. Yeah. Um, kneecap kind of on the side of his leg. It just, you, just, you just saw it. Some of you were like really squeamish. Sorry about that. Um, but it, it was not a pretty sight. Look at verse 25 with me. When the man saw he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. This is a really clear supernatural injury. Just a touch. Not not anything major or violent or strong. Just a touch on his leg as they were dangling there, hanging together. And all of a sudden, Jacob's leg was dangling at his hip. Out of joint. But this was the beginning of a radical transformation in Jacob's life. It was a blessing. Even though you're thinking, how is that a blessing? It brought him to the end of his own resources. It brought him to the end of himself. So let's, let's look at how this is a blessing, because I'm not sure you believe me yet, but I, I'm hopeful we'll get there. I want to get us there, that this is actually a blessing. Uh, 26, look at verse 26 again. Actually, let's go. We read, yeah, 25, 26. Then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what's your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven, wrestled with God and with men and have prevailed. I don't know any of us that like to go through pain and suffering it's called a masochist, you know, something that just is a, as a glutton for punishment. I don't think there's anybody really that likes to do that. I can't stand it, and I would never choose it. But is it possible from eternity I could look back and go, I would choose it when we see the outcome of what it does for us? It's possible in the grand length of eternity that a light momentary affliction, a touch on the hip, we could say, yeah. I would have God do that again. 
if this is where it brought me, if this is what accomplished within me. We don't have a very good theology of suffering, do we? We just don't. We're not very resilient, and sometimes it's just a little scratch will send us running, let alone a dislocation. Sometimes it just takes a little scratch, and we head for the hills, but the principle remains true. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those, for those specific people who were called according to his purpose, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Well, here's the point. The good as we define it and the good as God define it are many times quite different, aren't they? His purpose is right here in the middle of this verse. Take a look. To be conformed, it's that next slide there, Tony, to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his purpose. That's the greater good. That's what God was doing here with Jacob. And, and how was the son shaped? How was Jesus shaped himself? Through trials, through suffering. Why is this necessary? Why is this necessary? Listen now, because it's possible to be a Christian, even a church-going Christian, and live in, for, in the church for decades and not see much change in your life. It's possible. Do you feel that to be your case? Maybe you've been a decades, lifelong Christian. You look at I don't see change. I don't feel change. I'm dealing with the same struggles and trials and stresses and temptations that I've been dealing with forever. Church going for decades maybe and so little growth or change. Or maybe on the outside you might look nice and shiny. Maybe inside you're a mixture of anxieties and fears and bitterness and grudges and insecurities and hostilities maybe even. It's a crippling grace that God gives to Jacob here because you can't really ignore it when you're in a wrestling match and your hip falls apart, can you? You can't ignore it. He was instantly outmatched, and so what did he do? What do we do? Number three says this, in desperation, we must cling to the Lord in faith. That's what he did. Can you imagine? He becomes kind of like a rag doll, just, just hanging on for dear life as he's lost the use of one leg. This is not mano a mano anymore. It's more like one of the bull riders on top of a bull at the Canby Rodeo. That's more like what we've got a picture of here, a rag doll just hanging on. And sometimes isn't that, feel, isn't that what life feels like? Like you're just hanging on by a thread of faith. Lord, I believe, but help this giant mound of unbelief. Jacob hangs on. But this injury is a grace, is a blessing. Why? Let's look at it, because I really do want you to believe this. It's hard, but I want you to believe this. 
Let's look at it a bit more detailed. What does grace do? Here's some of the things this injury does. Grace, or this injury, brings us to the end of ourselves. That's what it does. Because we're wired to be like that little energizer rabbit from the commercials a long time ago. I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. We're just wired that way. We're full of that kind of energy. Jacob knows the character of his opponent here. And so he was brought to the end of himself, and he he insists on a blessing. Hosea 12 gives us a glimpse into Jacob's heart transformation that's coming here, that this graceful injury has brought him. Take a look, Hosea 12, speaking of Jacob. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel. And in his manhood, he wrestled, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. His request for blessing came when he finally realized in this moment of hip dislocation that he was absolutely dependent on God for everything. Not a stitch of his life. He was absolutely at the end of himself and totally helpless in this moment. But still clinging on. And Hosea lets us know he's weeping. This is a heart attitude. He's crying out for God's favor. Why? Because he's come to the end of himself and smacked right in the face with his guilt. Grace brings us face to face also with our guilt, with what we actually deserve. The angel asks Jacob, what's your name? I don't know how this was going on. They were wrestling and he was right in his ear. What's your name? I don't know. Who knows what it actually looked like? Looked like two guys wrestling, I guess. But in the middle of this wrestling match, he says, what's your name? In the Bible, to say your name, the name had a lot of meaning behind it, but to say it out loud was kind of this act of of self-disclosure, a revealing of yourself. And for Jacob here, doubly so. We know it's a rhetorical question, isn't it? This is a divine being here. This is divine figure. He knows Jacob's name. He came looking for Jacob, didn't he? This wasn't an accident. This wasn't a random wrestling match. God chose this man at this moment for this encounter. No, in saying the name, Jacob has to confess who he is. God is bringing him face to face with the entirety of his life in this moment. And we have to do that too. To come to Christ is to come and reckon with not who we say we are, not who we present who we are, but who you actually are in here. That's what grace does. Remember, the name Jacob had become known as what? Heel grabber. Grabber of opportunities. A deceiver. Remember, he grabbed his brother's heel coming out of the womb. And he grabbed the blessing from that brother later on. He's the heel grabber. It's like Jacob, when he says his name, it's like he's saying, yes, yes, it's me. I'm the fraud. I'm the one who cheated my brother twice. I am the liar. I am the sinner, Jacob. That's what we have happening here. This is the power of grace. Apart from the grace of God, you cannot admit who you truly are. But in the grace of God, With the gift of Christ, you have the blessing and freedom to admit it all and not lose one ounce of God's love. That's what grace does. So 
So rather than just getting a blessing, he gets an entire radical internal transformation. The old name is spoken so it can be contrasted with the new one he's given. As God says, when he comes to face with his sin, reckons with who he is, reckons with who this angel is, and says, I am Jacob, yes, it's me. He says to him, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. That's what Israel means, one who wrestles with God, strives with God. At least we think that's what it means. It's kind of a hard word to translate. Here's what grace does. It finally brings us God's victory. That's what happens for this man. The heart of this story is that even through all his struggles, it's a story of victory. It's a victory for Israel as his name is changed. It's a victory of Israel of faith, a victory in faith. Israel, he laid hold of this divine being in, in faith. It's not just a passive, lackadaisical, oh, well, resignation. No, no, no. We see a man here active and, and gripping, realizing the horror of life apart from God. I will not let go. I will hold on to you. There's no way I'm letting you go. He clings to this angel. Israel grips God's promise to bless him. And God is bound to Israel in his promises to bless. And so Jacob holds them, him. And God announces Israel is the winner with this new name. He didn't win in power or might, did he? Did he pin this angel ever? I don't think so. Not with a dislocated hip. He won through weakness. Not passive weakness, though. Admitting his helplessness. Admitting that he had power only in God. And God's victory when his power was gone. Gone. He knows it. And this is our path too, an active, gripping faith that even though we're riding the bull in the storm, there is great victory if we hold on. You have to hold on. But even as God was holding on to him. So let's look at the response of this blessing, this wrestling match. How did it wrap up? How did it end here? And how did, what's the point for us today? We're probably not going to be doing wrestling in the gathering place after church today. We're going to decorate cookies. You may get in a fight over a cookie if you don't get one, but uh, we're not doing that. Look at 29 through 30. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why? Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life, there's that word again, has been delivered. The word from his prayer. The danger for Israel as the morning was coming on was more realized. In the brightness of the day, he might actually see the very face of God, and who can look on that and live? No one. But Israel did. So that's what he calls the name of the place, Peniel, which means I've seen God face to face. He asked the name, but it was an inappropriate ask, because 
The name of God, the divine name, his name is not a name you can manipulate. It's not a name you could demand. And grace itself is even given where God chooses to give it and bless where he chooses to bless. It's his prerogative. But Israel is transformed in this moment as he wins by losing. So let's end with this question. How can you win by losing? How can you win by losing? He walks away with two changes in his life, doesn't he? He walks away with a limp. He walks away with a new name. But more importantly, what does he walk away with? Which I want for you and myself, a deeper fellowship with God, his maker. That's the real change. That's the real change that's just symbolically portrayed in the name and the limp that he now has. A deeper fellowship with God. And he's got no, should he fear now, Esau? He's now looked in the face of God. Is there any need to fear looking into the face of Esau once he's seen God? He's ready for his showdown with Esau now that he's looked into God's face. What does he have to fear? What do you and I have to fear? He caught a, a glimpse of God in the face of Christ, so to speak, who is the image of God. And that's what we have. That's what you have. That is what Christmas is all about. We can see the face of God in Jesus Christ. God has shown here his light on Israel, but now God has placed his light upon us in the face of Christ, as Paul writes in Corinthians. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. In the face of of Jesus. That phrase means all that he is, all who he is, all that's contained inside the divine son, the face of Jesus. And we too win by losing. Not by our own efforts to earn the blessing, not by scheming or adding to what Jesus has done, but because of Jesus's pattern of winning by losing, we do too. Let's look at Jesus' winning by losing. How does he do it? In restraining his power and taking the stroke. The great preacher Edmund Clowney points to two ways this passage foreshadows Jesus and points us to Jesus. The first one is this. In this restraining power, the angel of the Lord here now, this mysterious divine, divine figure, did you catch it? He wins by losing. He, he could have touched Jacob in this moment with the absolute touch of judgment. One more time, Jacob. One more time. I just showed you the angels again. And you're plotting and scheming and thinking you need to buy off Esau? He could have touched him with that touch of judgment. But the angel restrains himself in that moment, and he touches him with the touch of discipline, not judgment. Discipline, not judgment. Remember, his purpose was, was grace in the wounding, and the wounding then drew out this incredible faith from Israel. Clowney said this in his commentary, the Lord restrains his power, withholds his judgment to hear the cry of faith, to give himself, that is God, to give himself to the grasp that holds 
his promise. He didn't have to do this for Jacob. He restrained what could have been righteous judgment on Jacob so that he could hear this plead, this cry of faith from the moment of torment. Do you see why we can cry out to God? Because with us too, his children, of course he's going to bless you. What good father withholds good things from the children that he loves? Even if it comes through pain. He withholds what could come, what we actually do deserve, to draw out from us a cry of faith as he did with Jacob. The angel restrained himself. and Jesus restrained himself too. Think about that. As Neil talked about him taking on a body of flesh today, as Philippians talked about, how much divine prerogative did Jesus give up or not access to take on a body and be humble and watch people question him? Watch people walk away from him? Watch people abandon him and then still go die for them? Talk about restraint. God restrains himself in this story the same way Jesus did when he was on earth. So what do you do? When you find yourself under the heavy hand of God's providence, you feel his discipline upon you, what do you do? You cry out in faith. You cry out in faith. Hold on. As if you were riding the bull with a dislocated hip. Hold on. Wrestle with God in faith. Because it is a wrestling match, isn't it? I mean, it is. You feel that in your life. But secondly, and finally, Jesus is pictured here as the one who takes the stroke. We know Israel, now named Israel, carries in his body the seed of promise. The snake crusher who would come from this chosen family, Israel, who becomes the nation. And as we know, Isaiah, Scripture calls Jesus the true Israel, the one who passes and succeeds in all the places that this Israel failed and the nation of Israel failed. But this Israel, Jesus, would also take a stroke, wouldn't he? He would also take a wound for you. And Jacob's wound points us to the greater wound as Jesus himself wrestled with God in the garden. Do you remember that? He had a wrestling match with God too. He went to the mat with God in the garden. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if I can do this for these people. Yeah, I love them. I love you. Is there, is there another way, God? Talk about a wrestling match in that moment. Jesus wrestled with God in the garden and on the cross. And you know this, too. You don't, because I didn't either. I read it this week. Half of what I tell you, I just read, right? <laughs> the hip or thigh in the Old Testament is, is a euphemism for the part of the male body that produces children, the genitals. It's used that way all, all over the Old Testament. So Israel, the man now, suffers a wound touch that points to the area of his body where children come from. His progeny would take a wound 
as the true Israel. See, Jesus is the victor who wins by losing. The injury in Jacob to this part of his body was pointing us to the son that would come from his body that would take the ultimate wound for you. Jesus Christ. Jesus is the victor who wins by losing. Jacob gets the face of God. Jesus gets his back turned on him by God, or God turns his back on him. Jesus restrains himself of divine prerogative and becomes the victim for you that leads us to victory. And Jesus, too, held on to the Father in faith. And he still does, not letting go until you and I, till we receive the blessing. That's who's coming from this story. Who is this one? Well, Advent season reveals him. It's Emmanuel, God with us. God with us. The baby in the manger was the wounded son from Jacob's thigh, hip, genitals, the snake crusher who would come, who would win by losing. And for us, what do we get? We get the Holy Spirit. We get the shining face of God in his spirit coming upon us and coming in our hearts this Christmas as we celebrate Jesus coming. Back to that passage for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts. We get his face to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Is your faith desperate? Are you clinging to God in desperate faith? Will you cling to the Christ child this Advent season here at Bethany Church? Let's do that together this Christmas season as we prepare our hearts. Because you know what? God is still the rewarder of those who seek his face in desperate faith. He's the same God. Let's do it together. Pray with me. What a story, Lord, that you'd be willing to enter in some way into Jacob's life to grapple and wrestle with him and take the time of patience with this man and wound him in such a way that he could only come back from the wound closer to you as he healed. Jesus, this Advent season, let us grasp the reality more and more that you were the son to come, the one who would take the ultimate stroke from God for us. And so by doing, give us the beauty of your face. Let us come out the other side this Advent season